Acts chapter 7. We have uh, been following Stephen, one of the men chosen to wait on tables. It uh, doesn't specifically say he was a deacon. The word deacon comes from the chapter, but it doesn't specifically say they were that. And Stephen, filled with wisdom and the Holy Spirit, begins to dispute in the synagogue of the Cilicians and, and so forth, different, which means Saul of Tarsus may have been there. He was from Cilicia, uh, Tarsus, the capital of that region. And uh, th- they say they can't withstand him, his wisdom and his knowledge, and, and, and he just freaking all the scholars out, this guy. So they send out men with false accusations to say that he was saying that the temple would be torn down, that you can set aside the laws of of Moses and so forth. And then they come and they take him by force when he's not expecting it. And they bring him in front of the Sanhedrin. And Caiaphas there says, you know, are these things true that we've been hearing? And it says Stephen begins to speak and it says his face looked like the face of an angel. Again, I can't say it was lit up like a neon bulb. They never saw a neon bulb. They didn't have that point of reference. But S- Stephen is glowing, and they're all riveted on him. And he begins this sermon, the longest sermon in the book of Acts. And he takes them through their history that they would all agree with. But he goes point by point from Abraham, which they'd all identify with, and he brings it around to Joseph who was a God-appointed leader and deliverer who they rejected. Even his own brothers rejected him till they saw him for the second time, of course. Um, then he's coming, and he's come now to Moses. And we look at Moses, who the same thing was rejected by the children of Israel. They didn't want him as he came and so forth. And he's going to get around to saying, you've done the same thing to Jesus. You know, in this group of men that are there, Um, they took John the Baptist. God said the greatest voice raised. Among those born of women, there hath not arisen a greater than John. And his message in the center of human history, again, greater than Alexander the Great, greater than Elijah, greater than Jeremiah. No one was like him. No voice like his had ever been raised. And the Jews end up through the political pressure, getting him and putting him in prison. And, of course, his head is cut off. Jesus then, again, through political pressure, pushing him to the Romans, cry for his crucifixion, and he is put to death. Now Stephen, probably the most significant voice in the book of Acts, standing in front of the Sanhedrin, Unlike Peter or John, the others had done that, God lights him up, and his, and his face is shining, and he begins, we can see as we listen why they couldn't refute him in the synagogue, and there's a young man named Saul of Tarsus there listening to him, taking note of what he says, and by the time we come to the end, it says Saul of Tarsus is there consenting to his death, and he's holding the clothes of those. The idea is he voted for it. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, and he's watching this whole thing. And then as we follow Saul, his conversion, you know, we, we have here Philip and Stephen are chosen. So chapter 7 takes us through Stephen. Chapter 8, 
then takes us through Philip, and chapter 9 then takes us to Saul of Tarsus. It's just the, the way it rolls out is remarkable. And as you hear Paul preach through the New Testament, you realize he stole everything from Stephen. His, his mentor was not Gamaliel. It was Stephen. His spiritual father was Stephen. You know, and some people say, well, Stephen only had one convert, but that's a whopper, isn't it? Saul of Tarsus. Stephen changes the course of Western civilization by being true to what God put in front of him, and it affected one man who would affect the world. So we just have this interesting dialogue rolled out in front of us here, and we have come down as far as verse 22 where it says Moses, again, we don't know his Jewish name. That's the name an Egyptian princess gave to him. Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, medicine, science, mathematics, hieroglyphics, all of that, and was mighty in words and in deeds. And when he was a full 40 years old, so Stephen's going to do this. He's going to take us through three periods in Moses' life. 40 years in Egypt, 40 years in Egypt learning he was something, 40 years on the backside of the desert learning he was nothing, and then 40 years leading the children of Israel through the wilderness learning that God was everything. So he divides his life. So this is the end of the first 40 years in verse 23. It says, when he was full 40 years old, notice, it came into his heart to visit his brethren. He understood his Hebrew roots somehow. The children of Israel. Hebrews tells us this. It, it, it brings us in the context and, it, and it, it at least gives us some information about the scene. It says, by faith, Moses, when he was come to years, that's what it tells us here, 40 years refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. In the Egyptian dynasties, the bloodline was through the mother. So this mother, this princess, would have named him. Some scholars feel this is Hatshepsut, this, this Egyptian princess whose, whose husband is killed pursuing Moses and then she, it's, we, we know she's the only Egyptian female pharaoh that takes the throne for a while. Um, it says here, he refuses to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. And that's all the pleasures of sin last, is for a season esteeming the reproach of Christ, of Messiah, greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of reward. He had his eyes on something higher, you know, as Abraham did, as his lineage did. So it says, when he comes to a full 40 years old here, Stephen says, it was in his heart to visit his brethren. He realizes he's not Egyptian, Josephus tells us that Pharaoh is gone, this Pharaoh, 
the immediate pharaoh and that he was the only child in the house and would have been in line to be the next pharaoh. It says that he visited his brethren and seeing one of them suffer wrong, you saw it in the movie where Charlton Heston takes the guy down, seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended him and avenged him that was oppressed, and he smote the Egyptian. And it seems like a just cause. He's, he sees this Jew being beaten up, being maybe at the point of death, and he steps in ends up slaying the Egyptian, which as the son of Pharaoh's daughter, there was no basic problem with that in regards to him being in any type of trouble. And look at verse 25. It says, For he supposed... His brethren would have understood how that God, by his hand, would deliver them, but they understood not. So Moses knows his calling at this point in time. He, he understands his calling. He understands somehow he's going to be the deliverer of Israel. And it says he, he supposed that they would understand as well, but it says they understood not. Now look. For all of us, you know, Moses has stepped into this thing. He has a conviction in his heart about what he said, which is a proper conviction and it's right. It seems like the right thing he does, stepping in for his brother here in this difficult situation. And he's taken for granted because he knows somehow God's minister that the children of Israel will realize he's the one that, that wants to do the right thing on their behalf. But it says they understood not. You and I, and I'm going to preach this and have to face it all week, you and I need to understand that misunderstanding is a normal part of our journey. You and I will be misunderstood. And the thing we see with Moses is don't let, ever, don't let that ever take you from your calling. The misunderstanding of people around you, maybe even people close to you, or the people you think would understand the most, maybe the people that really understand you the least. And misunderstanding becomes a part of our journey as Christians. They, they didn't understand Christ. That's his whole point. We're being conformed into his image and likeness. We're filled with his spirit. He's going to say the children of Israel didn't receive him, and he was the Messiah. So Moses here, in his spirit, in his life, is stepping into that place that Christ would step into as a leader and a deliverer for the people of Israel, and they don't recognize him. And, and what he's, Stephen's trying to say to the Sanhedrin is they were against the deliverer that God sent to them. They didn't even understand, like the Sanhedrin did, that had Jesus put to death. And the next day, he showed himself to them as they strove. There's two of them striving. And he would have set them at one again, settled the problem, saying, Sirs, you're a brethren. Why do you wrong one to another? And he that did his neighbor wrong, listen, it's amazing, thrust him away, took the son of Pharaoh's daughter and threw him to the side. I mean, this is, this is this, next to Pharaoh himself. This is the most noble position in the land of Egypt. 
and he thrust him aside. This is why the Romans hated to rule over the Jews, to hate over Israel. You know, here's this Israelite who then takes Moses and cast him aside saying who made you a ruler or a judge over us now he's making a point with the Sanhedrin about the very thing they thrust him aside and said who made you ruler or judge over us rejecting their very deliverer what they did with Jesus wilt thou kill me as thou didst the Egyptian yesterday and it says then fled Moses at the saying, and was a stranger in the land of Midian, where he begot two sons. And when forty years were expired, there appeared unto him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai an angel of the Lord in a flame of fire in a bush. Now it's almost not fair. You know, he kind of lays out the first forty years. When he gets to the second forty years, he just says, and after forty years, like, you have to live through that 40 years. He's on the backside of a desert for 40 years. He's with the sheep. He's out there in, in who knows what environment, thinking about all the first 40 years in Egypt. Now he's a nothing. He's out there for 40 years, and God just says, oh, yeah, and after 40 years, it's very different to him than it is to us. And, you know, sometimes in our lives there is that place that God leads us into of sanctified loneliness. It's, it's, you know, John the Baptist on the backside of the desert, Moses out in the desert for 40 years, uh, John the Apostle on Patmos. Sometimes God just takes us alone because in that aloneness, he's able to do things and speak to us. It doesn't always mean that you have to be in the desert. I have sat in a room full of people, as you are right now, and felt very much alone in a crowd. And God is able to do that work in our hearts. Because the bottom line in each of our relationships with Jesus Christ is I'm the only one who's there. My wife can't step into that. My assistant pastors can't step into that. My sons and daughters can't step into that. I have something with Jesus that's terribly lonely. And in some ways, for each of us, our calling and what we do, is this is the loneliest thing I've ever done personally. I love it, I'm thankful, but it's just nobody can step into that place as no one can step into yours. And God just had Moses 80 years in seminary, 40 years in Egypt, learning what it was like to be rich and powerful, 40 years on the backside of the desert, learning what bah meant. And now it just says after 40 years, God comes and he's going to reveal himself to Moses. And it says, the angel of the Lord came in the fire, in this burning bush. It tells us in Exodus chapter 3, it says, it says that he's on the backside of the desert, and the Lord comes to him, and moreover he said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God, the I am that I am. But it tells us that it was the angel of the Lord's presence there in the flame. It was Jesus Christ, obviously. And he was afraid to look upon God. Interesting picture here. It tells us this happens. This is just free information. 
in Midian. Any of you who have a decent map in your Bible, uh, it's hard to find honest things these days, but Midian is not on the Sinai Peninsula. Midian is in Saudi Arabia. And it tells us in Exodus that Moses kept the flock of Jethro's father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock on the backside of the desert, and he came to the mountain of God, called Horeb. That's in Midian. And when God begins to speak to him, he said, Certainly I will be with thee, and this shall be a token unto thee that I have sent thee when thou hast brought forth the people out of Egypt. You shall serve God upon this mountain. That's Midian, which is in Saudi Arabia. Paul tells us this in Galatians. He said, Hagar... Um, these things are an allegory, for these things are two covenants. The one, Mount Sinai, gendereth to bondage, which is Agar. This Agar is Sinai in Arabia, and answers to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children, but Jerusalem, which is above, is free. So Paul tells us Mount Sinai is in Arabia. It's not on the Sinai, but it was, it was Constantine's mother. Alina came down there, and she decided where everything was in Israel down there, and she was wrong about all of it. So they built a monastery there, you know, of course, on Mount Sinai in the Sinai Peninsula, St. Catharines. But Midian is in Saudi Arabia. The place where the sea parted was not where they try to make a swamp out of it all the time in Goshen. You go to the other branch of the Red Sea, and between that, you have Hyapiroth there described, and you have that part of the, the Red Sea, that finger drops off in different places to three and 5,000 foot deep. There's one place where it's only 1,500 foot deep, and the slope is acceptable for a wheelchair through that part to the other side. Our military knows that. Our military has seen with um, imagery remnants of gold there strung across that, looking like a necklace. Now, one of our guys said, I said to my commanding officer, he said, nah, I know. He said, what do you mean? He said, look at this, sir. And he said, no. He said, he said what do you mean? He said, Moses, the children of Israel. He said, we know about this? And he said, yeah. So Mount Sinai, Horeb, is not in the Sinai Peninsula. It's in Midian, which is in Saudi Arabia. Now, the Saudis don't want anything like that on the Holy Kingdom. They don't want anybody to know about But it's there, and it's, too easy. it's easy for you to study and come up with those things, by the way. He says, Moses was there for 40 years, Mount Sinai, and an angel of the Lord in a flame fire in the bush came to him. And when Moses saw it, <coughs> he wondered at the sight from a distance. And as he drew near to behold it, the voice of the Lord came unto him, saying, I am the God of thy fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, then Moses trembled and dared not behold. That's what we just read. He hid his face because he didn't want to look upon God. Then said the Lord to him, Put off thy shoes from thy feet, for the place where thou standest is holy ground. By the way, 
in Gerizim, and there, there are still today Samaritans that do that. They take off their shoes. Islam still does that in certain environments. Take off thy shoes from thy feet for the place which thou standest is holy ground. And then wonderful here in verse 34, God says this, I have seen. I, now, King James is I have seen, I have seen. Your translation it might be I have certainly seen or I have undoubtedly seen. When it doubles it up like that in the Greek, I have seen, I have seen, is saying I have certainly seen. And it's wonderful to hear that from the Lord. I have certainly seen the affliction of my people. Write that, make it, put that on your dashboard, make a bumper sticker out of that, put it on your, your hoodie. I have seen, I have seen, I have certainly seen, because we feel like he doesn't sometimes. I have certainly seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt. Not only have I seen, I have heard their groaning. And from me, here's, here's a lot of groaning, grumbling, moaning, complaining. I have heard their groaning, and notice he says, I am come down to deliver them, and now come, I will send thee to them. And Moses refused. You know, reading through this whole scene again, it's one of my favorite scenes in the Bible. Moses on the backside of the desert, Midian, Mount Horeb, he sees this thing, like in the movie, remember Charlton Heston, so I'm going to go see this thing. And he gets close, and there's the presence of the Lord in this flame. There's a burning bush there that's not consumed. When you go to the Holocaust Museum in Israel, it's very interesting, under some of the large stones are the ashes from Dachau and Buchenwald and in the different death camps. And in the middle of it, they have this kind of modernistic statue with these branches and a flames in the middle of it. It's kind of like the bush has not been consumed. It still burns, you know, but it's never consumed. And uh, the, then, then as Moses comes there, he hears the voice. He falls down. And God says, I'm going to send you. Please listen, because he, he may say this to you. He's going to send you somewhere. I'm going to send you. And upon that, Moses says, who am I? that I should go. And God says to Moses, no, it doesn't matter who you are. I'm the one who's sending me. So Moses says, well, when I get there and tell them you sent me, they're going to ask me who you are. Who are you? And of course, God says, well, I am that I am. And he takes them through this thing. And it's, it's very interesting. Moses is hesitating. He doesn't want to do it. And, and God kind of says, well, he doesn't know who he is. He doesn't know who I am. Uh, let's start with something simple. He says, what's in your hand? And Moses says, a rod. Now, I would say that to you this evening. What's in your hand? What's in your hand? It took 80 years for God to put that there. And the problem was, like you and I, we get so ingrained in our environment and what we do, what's in your hand? A rod. He knew it so well, he didn't know it at all. He knew every twist, every turn. It smelled like lanolin from the sheep. He knew everywhere it was shiny from holding it. He knew everything about it, he thought. 
You didn't know it was going to turn into a serpent. You didn't know it was going to turn the Nile to blood. He didn't know it was going to bring lice over the land of Egypt. He didn't know it was going to part the Red Sea. He didn't know it was going to blossom and bring forth fruit. He knew it so well that he didn't know it at all. And sometimes you and I get so ingrained in our environment that we can get desensitized. I can do that here. There's a routine. It can become a rut. And sometimes God has to say to us, look, what's in your hand? What's in your hand? Jawbone of an ass? What's that mean in front of a thousand Philistines? What's in your hand, you know? Trumpet, a pot, 300 soldiers against 135,000 Midianites. What's in your hand, kid? Sling? Of course, what's that mean if the giant's standing in front of you? What's in your hand? Five loaves and three fishes? Give them to me. Give them to me. And there's always a question for us. What's in your hand? A computer? A toolbox? Some instrument? What's in your hand? Is it there by mistake? It's interesting. God says, throw it down, Moses. He throws it down, turns into a serpent. And it says, Moses takes off. Now he's running through the desert in his bare feet. The deliverer. That must have hurt. God's got to call him back again. You know, he says, grab and it turns back into, you know, that you saw the movie, turns back into the stick again. But, you know, there's an incredible scene that takes place here. And the incredible question, one of the incredible questions in the Bible that should be still being asked by the Holy Spirit of every one of us today, what's in your hand? A spouse, kids, grandkids, talents, placement, calling. What's in your hand? Will you let it be God's? Will you yield it to him? Because he took a long time to put it there, and he knows it way better than you do. Way better than you do. He says to Moses, I have seen, I have seen the affliction of my people, which is in Egypt. I have heard their groaning, and I'm come down to deliver them, and now I come, I will send you and your stick. How could that ever happen? It does, it is, you know... I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they refused, saying, Who made thee ruler or judge? The same did God send. Now he's making a point about Jesus with the Sanhedrin. This is Moses, you know, who when he gets there, they're going to refuse him. But God made him ruler and judge. The same did God send supernaturally, appeared to him in the burning bush, send him to be ruler and to be deliverer, by the hand of the angel which appeared to him in the bush. He brought them out after that he had showed wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. That's the third 40 years. You know, he, he finally gets them to the point where God's going to use that rod. Look, that was 80 years of seminary. 80 years, 40 in Egypt, 
40 on the backside of the desert keeping Jethro's flocks. And then finally God says, all right, now let's move. And the last 40 years in the wilderness with the children of Israel. Dies at 120, says, his eye was not dim, his natural forces were not abated. Remarkably, that manna must have been something. Health food, gluten-free, you know, the whole deal. He was in the wilderness with them now for 40 years. This is that Moses which said to the children of Israel, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you, in Deuteronomy, of your brethren, like unto me, him shall ye hear. He's going to be deliverer. He's going to come from a place you don't expect him to come from. He's going to be rejected and measured. You know, he, you know he's going to be like unto me. And you, you can go through the analogies in every way that Christ, you know, in, just reflected the life of Moses in his coming, being sent to God's people to deliver them. And he said, Moses spoke of this, that he would raise up one like Mike unto me, because they're accusing Stephen uh, of saying that he would, God was going to do something despiteful to the temple and that set aside the law of Moses. And he said, no, Moses is the one that said he's sending someone, this Messiah, and you're not willing to listen, just like your fathers of old. They wouldn't listen to Joseph. They wouldn't listen to Moses. This is he, verse 38, that was in the church, now ecclesia, the called out ones in the wilderness, is the only time anywhere in the New Testament where God's ancient people, Israel, is called the church. The, the Greek word is those that were called out. They were called out of Egypt, obviously. This is he that was in the church in the wilderness with the angel which spake to him in Mount Sinai and with our fathers who received the lively oracles to give unto us. They received this miraculously there in the wilderness with Moses to hand these things then down to us. To whom our fathers, he said, you're picking on me. He said, our fathers would not obey but they thrust him from them, and their hearts turned back again to Egypt. Incredible. You, you follow them through the wilderness journey, and, you know, the man is falling from the sky. They say, we're tired of this manna. You know, manna in the morning, manna in the evening, manna at supper time, you know. Manana splits, manicotti. We're just tired of manna. How many ways can you make this stuff, you know? And and it's and they're whining for that, you know. You know, and where's the leeks? Where's the garlic? Where's the flesh pots? We want Rubens, you know. We want, you know, corned beef sandwiches. What is the deal? You got us out here in the wilderness. And one of the interesting things is that uh, it tells us in Numbers 11 that God says, "Are you one flesh? I'll give you flesh." And I'll give it to you till it comes out your nostrils. And the quail come in, and they said they start to beat them down with sticks. Everybody gets a homer. It's better than the Phillies these days. Everybody gets a homer, it says. And it says they ate the flesh till they were sick, and the Lord made it come out their nostrils, and they were sick of it. They couldn't stand it. And it says many of them died there, and they were buried in Kibrothatavah the graves of lust 
sadly, how many do we know along the way? Buried there at the graves of lust. It says, our fathers wouldn't listen to him. He had the living oracles. They didn't obey. They thrust him from them, and they turned back again to Egypt, apostasy, saying unto Aaron, Make us gods to go before us. For as for this Moses, he went up to get the Ten Commandments, which brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. We don't know where he is. And they're listening, and Stephen's face is lit up. They're riveted because he is so accurate on the history of their own people that he's giving to them. And they made a calf in those days and offered sacrifice unto the idol and rejoiced in the work of their own hands, in the works of their own hands. These are our fathers. This is our lineage. These are the ones, you know, he says. They rejoice in the works of their own hands. Then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets, O house of Israel, have ye offered to me slain beasts and sacrifices by the space of 40 years in the wilderness? The idea is it's a negative, it's rhetorical. No, that wasn't to me. You took up the tabernacle of Molech and the star of your god, Remphun. Figures which you made to worship them, I will carry you away to Babylon. What an interesting picture. It says all of this privilege with Moses, they're brought out, and it says as soon as they're in the wilderness, as soon as circumstances aren't the way they want them to be, they turn back. They turn back. And Christians will do that. They'll say stupid things like, it was easier before I was saved. <laughs> yeah, oh, for, forget about getting whipped by Pharaoh. Forget about getting your kids thrown in the river. Forget about getting beaten. We missed the garlic. Just think that's brain damage. That's selective reasoning. That's, you know, just think. And we can, But we can be like that. It was easier before, looking back. No, this is a warfare that we're in. The New Testament talks about our armor and our helmet and our sword and that we've been drafted by our commanding officer and that we can't give ourselves to civilian pursuits but to please the one who chose us to take us to battle. That's through here, but they turn back. Now, here's the scary thing for us as Americans right now as well. It says, finally, then, God gives them up. He gave them up. God turned, verse 42, and he gave them up. He had brought them out in verse 36, brought them out, delivered them, took them out. But they were holding on to those things. He couldn't deal with it. Their hearts were gone, so he gave them up. Scary thing. It says, finally, like it does in Romans chapter 1, it says the same thing. God gave them up to their lust. There comes a point when God says to a nation, and I think he's saying it to ours, have it your way. I'll take my hand off of things. I'll remove my hand. You're on your own. Have it your way. 
And with you and I as his children, if we turn, we do something stupid, we backslide, he'll let us have that. Now, he doesn't take his hand off the same way because we're bought with the blood of Christ. He's going to have us one way or another. We may not look like much by the time the cat drags us back in, but God's going to have us. And that's the long way around the barn. But with the nation, and Stephen is rebuking those that were trying to challenge him, he says, God gave them up. Because their worship wasn't genuine. They, they weren't really sacrificing to him. And then he took up the tabernacle of Molech. They were sacrificing their own children. And the star of Remphan, figures which you made to worship them, and I will carry you away into Babylon. Ultimately, this is where this leads. You end up in Babylon. Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness, as he had appointed, speaking unto Moses, that he should make it according to the fashion that he had seen. So Moses saw the real tabernacle of God in heaven, and he was specifically told to make the earthly tabernacle reflecting those things. And God gave the gift of workmanship to certain of the men supernaturally to construct these things and do these things. And it says, which also our fathers that came after brought in with Jesus into the possession of the Gentiles, whom God drave out before the face of our fathers until the days of David. Now they brought it in with Jesus. He's a Hellenist. He reads the Septuagint translation of the Old Testament. This is the word Joshua. Joshua, very interesting, the first book in the Bible named after a person. Moses, the first five, the five, first five books of the Bible, Moses couldn't bring the children of Israel into the promised land. Only Joshua could do that. So he says here, he's re recounting their history, but Stephen, because he was a Hellenist, would use this name, Greek name, Jesus, for Joshua, which also our fathers that came after brought in with Jesus into the possession of the Gentiles, Canaanite, Hittite, all, all the ites, whom God drave out before the face of our fathers. God did it. Unto the days of David, he says, the kingdom finally established, who found favor before God and desired to find a tabernacle, a dwelling for the God of Jacob, that was David's heart, but Solomon built him a house. David so longed to do that. Um, David was told then by Nathan, no, there's blood, you're a man of blood, there's blood on your hands, you're a man of battle, you can't do this. So David, realizing he couldn't do it, lent all of his strength to seeing somebody else successful at what he wanted to do. Isn't that interesting? Because we're not like that. We don't get to do it. We don't want anybody else to do it, you know. And David realizes he can't do it, so he prefabs the whole thing. And he tells Solomon in Chronicles, God showed me this is the pattern. This is how the priest should be arranged. This is how the musician should be arranged. This is how the singer should be arranged. This is what the temple should look like. These are where the stones. These are the timbers. God showed David the whole thing. It was really David's temple. Solomon built it. And God had revealed that to David as he revealed the tabernacle to Moses because it all reflected something from the heart of God. He said, but Solomon built him the house, 
how be it, but the Most High dwelleth not in temples made with hands. They, now they're criticizing him, saying this fellow said something about the temple and tearing the temple down. He says, look, you guys know this. The, the Most High dwelleth not in temples made with hands, as saith the prophet. Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What house will you build me, saith the Lord, for what is the place of my rest? Now look, Solomon will say that. You're the God of the universe. You stretch out the heavens. Certainly no one can build you. You're not going to be, you know, contained. That, that was the point. It doesn't say that he couldn't be found there. It says he couldn't be contained there. You know, Sundays, Wednesday nights, we come to the house of the Lord in one sense, but we really come to the Lord of the house. That's why we come. And this was a place that God set aside. In all the nations of the world, the, the children of Israel were to be the priests of all other nations. God said, who has statutes and commandments and ordinance like you? No one else in the world. So God set aside a place because he didn't want them to worship on the high place. He didn't want them worshiping other gods. He says, this is where you'll come to worship. This is where blood will be shed. This is where the sacrifice will take place. This is where the feast will be realized. This is where you can come and meet with me. He doesn't say, though, he's contained there. It says he could be found there. And he wanted to set aside a place where the worship was ordered because it was all reflecting this greater one that would come. It all had to be done a certain way and seen a certain way. And he, sa he says here, but he's saying to them, but you yourselves know that God, this was Solomon's temple, not Herod's. And God said he couldn't be contained there. He said, this is not the place of my rest. Hath not my hand made all of these things? And now Stephen, in verse 51, starts into his application. He starts to take the sermon and apply it. I think he starts out kind of rough, you know. It, doesn't, it seems like he could have made a better first point as he got here. Here's his application. You stiff-necked. <laughs> He's talking to Sanhedrin. He's, you know, you hope we never have to talk to people that way, you know. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised, notice this, in heart and ears. Saul of Tarsus is going to steal that from him in the book of Romans. He's listening to it. His heart is broken, Saul, and he's angry as he's listening to this whippersnapper, this upstart who didn't go to school, who couldn't speak and read Hebrew. You know, this kid without a seminary degree just laid out the whole religious, you know, uh, hoi polloi of Israel. He says, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you do always resist the Holy Ghost as your fathers did, so do you. And his face is lit up while he's saying it. Steam is beginning to blow out of their ears, I guarantee you, because they're going to kill him. They're going to kill him. That's conviction. When you give a sermon like that, everybody runs and kills you at the end. That was a good sermon. Not here, not here, there. This is a different scene. Isn't it interesting? He talks about them resisting the Holy Ghost. That is something that happens pre-salvation. Martin, uh, Camel Morgan wrote a great book, Resist Not, Grieve Not, Quench Not. And the resisting of the Holy Spirit is what someone, if you're here tonight and you don't know Christ and your friends 
drug you out here, said, or if you come out, I'll treat you at the coffee house afterwards, I'll take you, whatever. Make sure in your life, if you've been coming, you've been listening to these things, that you're not resisting the Holy Spirit. Jesus said when the Holy Spirit comes, he'll convict the world of sin and of righteousness and judgment to come. He'll take these things and make them plain. What unbelievers do in their, in their fallen state, unbelievers, they resist the Holy Spirit. He's working on their hearts. In fact, chapter 9, the Lord's going to say to Saul, it's hard for you to kick against the goats, isn't it? Because he's under conviction of the Holy Spirit, not saved. But he says here, don't resist the Holy Spirit if you're here tonight and you're not saved. It tells us this in Ephesians. This is to you and I as believers. It says, and grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed into the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. He says there to you and I as believers, don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God. We can do that. And it's the same word that Paul uses when he says, I would not have you ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, that you grieve not as others who have no hope. It's the pain of death, of losing a loved one. And he says here, the Holy Spirit feels that kind of pain when he comes and he indwells us and he lives within us and we will not let go of bitterness and anger and malice because he had been in Christ when Christ was praying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Look, church, you know, here we are. And, and this is a rebuke to me. I get mad. My feelings get hurt. I want to form my posse and settle everything. I understand these emotions. But there's a place in that where I can grieve God's Holy Spirit. Because he wants something else when that takes place. And when I heard him, it says it's the same kind of pain that someone has when they lose a loved one. Paul will say in Thessalonians, quench not the spirit. You know, you're around other believers. The spirit of God is moving. Quench not kind of picture, a picture of a fire, you know, something that's burning. And sometimes because it doesn't fit into our box we want to put a lid on it all the time. No, don't quench the Holy Spirit. And this, in, in the context, Thessalonians is about prophesying, about speaking the truth. Don't quench the Spirit. So for you and I, it's quench not, grieve not. Now, he's yelling at unbelievers because they're resisting. But maybe if Stephen was here tonight, he'd be yelling at me, saying, yo, Joe, grieve not, quench not, Okay. Forget about those guys. I'm talking about you tonight. Okay, Steve. Okay, you're just doing that because you know you're safe with me because I can't stone you. He says here, you do always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. His face is shining. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them which showed before the coming of the just one of whom you have been now betrayers and murderers. Now he's driving the point home here. You've got to say that for Steve. Uh, interesting, he calls him the just one. 
chapter 2, verse 14, and chapter 22, verse 14, both of them speak about the just one only three times in the New Testament, and it's all in the book of Acts. For some reason, he is called the just one, of whom you have now been betrayers and murderers, the very thing that they were accusing him of, and they thought they had put Stephen on trial, and it was 71 against 1. Now Stephen has all of them on trial. He's the prosecutor, and all 71 of them are guilty. And he says, he says you, you've become betrayers and murderers who have received the law by the disposition of angels, and you have not kept it. Oh, we can't finish tonight. And when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. In fact, it's an interesting word. It's literally sawn. You know, being cut to the heart is one thing, but when it's sawn to the heart is a completely different thing. You know, and that had been going on through this whole teaching. They were sawn to the heart. And they gnashed on him with their teeth. It doesn't mean they all ran up and chewed on Stephen. The idea is they gritted their teeth. They're so mad they can't stand it. Kid, he's got, you know, he's got the whole thing smoking now. Next week. Well, look, if the Lord doesn't tarry, you can ask Stephen yourself. This week, right? The, we hear that really the Feast of Trumpets, the real dates are this week in the Hebrew calendar. They've been taken out. Rosh Hashanah was celebrated earlier, but the real dates are now. I think this is a great time for the trumpet to blow, don't you? I mean, we've, we've kept Passover. We've kept Pentecost. It's only right that we would keep the Feast of Trumpets as well. Uh, but if we are here next week, um, let's pick up here Lord willing, in verse 54, we come to the end, the first martyr in the New Testament, Saul of Tarsus, standing by, an impression made on him really that is immeasurable and will stay with him for the rest of his life. This is one table waiter who stood up, who stood up, who yielded to the Spirit of God. And you talk about being misunderstood. Moses may have misunderstood this kid is completely misunderstood by all of the religious leadership of the nation. And he's telling the truth. Isn't that interesting? He's telling the truth and nobody understands. Did you ever feel that way? At home, right? <laughs> All right. Now let's, let's sing a last song. Let's bow our hearts. Let's pray. Let's put these things before the Lord. Uh, Lord, we thank you for this accurate record no doubt um lord it seems saul probably filled luke in on this sermon and what he heard and what had crushed his heart as these words were spoken and lord we want your word lord to come under us and lift us up lord you have spoken your word to us it's as anointment poured forth it's medicine for us lord it divides down in us between that which is soulish and that which is spiritual and it brings forth fruit it accomplishes lord you say that we have received your word as the word of God, which it is, and that it's effectual in our lives. And we're thankful for it, Lord. So as we study through these scenes tonight and this record you put to the page, 
Let the fruit come from this that only you can bring in our lives, Lord. And let it be, as you say, fruit that abides, that the Father might be glorified. Let there be abiding fruit in our lives from these things, Lord. And we believe as we ask, we're praying according to your will. You said it was your will that we would bring forth fruit and that fruit would abide. Lord, let that happen in our lives. We lift our voices and our hearts now, Lord. We draw close to you, Lord Jesus. The sacrifice of praise, the fruit of our lips, Lord. Let it be a sweet savor before you this evening. And Lord, in this world gone mad, Lord, encourage our hearts. Let us not, Lord, cower, Lord. Let us stand. And as you say, having done all, to stand. Let us have the armor on we need in the days that we live in. And Lord, let us remember that this world that drives us out of our minds is a world you said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe would not perish but have everlasting life. Lord, help us to remember, Lord, that we would be the conduits, Lord, of your love in a lost and broken world. And Lord, we look at it and we can hardly imagine, Lord, that there are still those to be gathered in, Lord. It just seems like there's such a unified voice of rebellion and anger and hatred, Lord. Break it down, Lord. Let your love and your spirit like a river flow through this generation and this culture, Lord. Let us see it. Let us just stand back and behold it, Lord, and be filled with wonder. Lord Jesus, we all know people that aren't saved, that are still lost. We still have, all of us have family members and people we work with and go to school with and neighbors, Lord. Let us see it, Lord Jesus. We pray, Lord. Let us be filled with your spirit like Stephen. Lord Jesus, we pray in your name and for your glory.